Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. When the McBride fire started on April 12th in Ruidoso, within minutes, flames spread to neighboring residential areas. And in the end, two people, an elderly couple, died in the fire and more than 200 homes were destroyed. The largest type of federal emergency resource team, a type one incident command team, took over that wildfire within days to help stop the spread. And since then, the village of Ruidoso has seen help from all over. With us to talk about how the village is still recovering is Carrie Glass. She's the public information officer for the village. And according to your bio, Carrie, you've been called an eternal optimist. Is that still true? I would say yes. I've I've been accused of being a rainbows and puppy dogs kind of person. Awesome. It's, it's always important to have have folks like that around. And, and I know that you have been a big part of the village of Ruidoso for a long while here, um, as I understand, for more than a decade. And I understand you've seen other wildfires as well. Right. You know, uh, the Little Bear Fire 10 years ago, that was in 2012. News 13 pilot reporter Bob Martin continues our coverage from Sky Ranger. It has been a moving target since it blew up Friday afternoon. Even today, powered by more winds and tender dry forest, the Little Bear was pushing hard through the White Mountain wilderness. The toll in destroyed homes is massive. A couple of entire neighborhoods were leveled in and east of the Bonito Canyon area. Then moving further to the east, across the once green scenic countryside, home after home, has been lost. And that destroyed more than 200 homes. I was not there for that fire, but I know it's something that Gabby was in the mix of. Yeah, it was my first wildfire to cover. Yeah, millions of dollars in damage with that fire as well. And, and I wanted to start by asking you, how does the McBride fire compare? I think the the difference between the two is that the, the Little Bear fire was more outside of town. And the McBride fire was was in a very residential section that was literally right over the ridge of of Riodoso proper. We begin with breaking news. Two fires in the Riodoso area. This one huge. It is east of the links at Sierra Blanca Golf Course. You can see a home completely engulfed. Neighbors tell us it is moving and growing fast. The fire department tells us it is located near McBride Drive, is moving north to Gavilan Canyon toward Homestead Acres and Eagle Creek. I mean, it, it literally started 300 yards from the front door of Ridoso Middle School. And it, you know, kids were, the kids at the elementary school were on the buses. The middle school would be on a normal day, they would be letting out fairly soon after that. And so it was, you know, the timing and the, the location of the fire was very different than the little bear fire. And so even though the devastation was equal in a lot of ways with both of them, the McBride fire was right here where as the, the Little Bear fire burned in much more remote locations yeah. in the village. It, it feels like the Little Bear fire was one of those ones where perhaps people saw it from the village and thought, oh man, I hope this doesn't come towards the village and, and affect even more 
of the sort of center point of town. But the McBride fire was literally pretty much right in the middle of town, you could say. And, and it almost felt like that worst nightmare come true. We're seeing it all play out and don't know what's going to happen. I, I would think that that's a, a correct observation. And, you know, it, the Little Bear Fire did not burn within the actual village limits. The McBride Fire did. And, mm-hmm. and that when it was with the, the Little Bear Fire, it was a matter of where the wind's going to shift and blow it back towards the village. And with the McBride Fire, it started in the village. And with if the winds shifted just a little bit, you know, it, it could have been a very, very different outcome. So dealing with so many families who've lost homes and in some cases, everything, what's happening in the village now that the flames are out? Truly before the flames were even out, when it was still at 0% containment, the village had already shifted into a recovery mode. However, a lot of help is on the way. A type one command team is coming in overnight that will help bolster the number of people fighting this fire from 250 to anywhere between 700 and 1,000. Once the type one team came in and command shifted to them, the village was shifting its attention to how are we gonna help the residents recover from this? There has been a lot of focus on cleanup, assistance, finding people who lost everything, housing, temporary housing, helping them to get in touch with FEMA and working through the insurance maze and just getting the immediate assistance that they need. For instance, we're having a meeting here. It's called Cabinet in Your Community, which is where agencies from the state level come in, people from the governor's office, from the state insurance office. I think it's about 10 government agencies come in and they their sole purpose for being here is recovery and assistance. And so just working to provide every option that we know how to provide to those people who need it the most. What's the sense in the community after something like this? Do a bunch of businesses close down and and wait for fire season to end? Are people working together to help each other too? The community has really come together to do everything that they can from a business standpoint. The day that the fire happened and the day after, we lost all power, communication, cell phone, phone. A lot of businesses had no choice but to close down. But even then, they were trying to figure out what can we do to help? Do we have food that we can get out there to firefighters, to families? What can we do to help? And that's just kind of been the overarching sentiment in this community, which to me is no surprise at all that the community would do something like this in a time like this. It's just, it's what this community does. And we come together and we take care of our own. And the outpouring from other communities around has been the same. Can you give me some of those examples of things that you've seen locals do? One example that comes to mind immediately is that the fire started on a Tuesday. The village of Ridoso proper had no power. There's a restaurant in the Downs, Jorge's, and there was kind of a line where to the east of us had power. Jorge's is usually closed on Wednesdays. Their people came in and they cooked for firefighters, for the village personnel that was working around the clock. They loaded up their 
their trailer and just started bringing it and saying, take it to whoever, whoever needs it. I understand there are a lot of rental properties and vacation homes in Rudo. So you mentioned to me over the phone that some of those landlords have said, hey, take my property off the rental market and use it for a displaced family. How often is that happening? That is happening quite often. We actually had to turn that over to the Chamber of Commerce to help us manage that because we had so many people that were calling in that own short-term rentals here because that's that has become a very big business here as we're a resort community. And they would call and say, take my short-term rental out of the rental pool if you have a displaced family that can use it. Some of them have said indefinitely, some of them have said for six months, however long you need it. Because that business has grown so much, we have a shortage of long-term rentals here in Ridoso. And that's that's been a, an ongoing battle that, that we've been fighting for our workforce and everything. So knowing that we were going to have this problem with having over 200 homes being lost, and we still have 50 families that we're trying to place. With that in mind, how long do you foresee it being for Ruidoso to rebuild from the damage of this McBride fire? It'll take some time. It'll take several years for that part of Rideau. So that was that was so devastated to to rebuild. But, you know, that's it, no longer than it would take anywhere else. It just it's what happens when you have a natural disaster. Carrie, what do you want people to know about your community and how it's been impacted by wildfires? I think that the important thing for people to know is that we live in, we live in the WUI, the wildland urban interface, and it's part of it. And it's not fun. And we, you know, every year when wildfire season comes around, we cross our fingers and hope for the best, but it's also part of the beauty of this area. And it's why we live here and why we love it. And the the outdoors and the outdoor activities is what makes Rideau so so special and so unique. We want to encourage people to continue to come visit Rideau, so come enjoy it. It you know Midtown is still Midtown and and it did not get affected. We still have lots of of great things to offer, and our town, our people, our residents, our businesses need for people to come and visit. That's important to us now. It's important to our economy more so than ever. And so I would just encourage people to not look at Ridoso and say, oh my goodness, they just had a fire. Let's cancel our plans. And, you know, the beauty is still here. And and yes, if you drive through those neighborhoods, it's, it's hard. It's sad to, to see that. they'll be back and they'll be better than ever. And there's still lots and lots of beauty here and lots of things to do and see and fun, fun places to go. How's your home? Mine is good. Mine is good. It was the, the fire was headed that way when it first started and then the wind shifted and took it the other way. So mine got caught in the white fire in 2011.
It's really hard to imagine having to leave everything behind. What do you take with you? And if your home burns in a wildfire, what's the next step? This is something that so many families in New Mexico are unfortunately facing with these out of control wildfires. We got in touch with one family from Ruidoso who lost everything when the McBride fire in mid-April burned more than 200 homes. Karen Roach is on the line with us today. Karen, thanks so much for taking the time to share your experience with us. Thank you. So first I wanted to ask, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. You guys have lived in Ruidoso for some years. What do you and your husband do and what drew you to the area initially? Well, we've been in Ruidoso about six years. We uh, moved here from Portales, the area that both my husband and I grew up in. Um, At that time, we still had three children at home. We have six daughters total, but we still had three at home. And uh, my husband is in construction. He's a general contractor and I sell real estate and I own a local bakery here. We did mention as well, right off the top, that you are one of those folks who lost their home in the McBride fire. Can you just tell us what happened that day? Well, my husband was unfortunately out of state visiting his mom. Um, I was at work and our 20-year-old daughter was home. In fact, she just moved back from Albuquerque two weeks before the fire. Um, and she's no longer going to school. So she came home to figure things out and figure out what her next step was. And so anyway, she was home. My 14 year old was at school. I was at work and, uh, I was going to come home for a late lunch and her and I were going to eat. And so I ordered us pizza. And by the time I was headed home, I noticed that there were lots of flames. The wind was really bad in town that day. So I knew there was stuff going on. But uh, when I got to the road that I generally turned to, to go to my house, uh, it was blocked. And, the you know, still not knowing what was going on because it happened so fast. The guy stopped me and, and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, there's a fire. And I said, well, my daughter is on Gavilan Canyon where we lived, of course. And he just got a, a, like a very white face and, and he asked me the address. And I said, my daughter's in one of those houses. He just uh, was getting on his radio right away to call someone, I guess. I'm not sure they were going to go check the house. We weren't able to get in contact with one another because the phone service had been down because of the wind. So I didn't know if she was still in the house waiting on me to come home or had she gotten out. Well, she hadn't gotten out. Actually, she had fallen asleep on the couch waiting for me. And um, one of our dogs happened to jump in her lap. And she kind of woke up startled, realized that the house was really dark. And she said kind of red. She felt like maybe something was going on. She looked out the back and her entire deck was on fire. Oh, my gosh. She had to go downstairs to get her keys and her shoes came back up. By the time she got our two puppies out the front door, the fire had come over the top of the house and was on the front deck. So um, she was able, thank God, to get in her car and drove through flame to get down the road and then finally got to people and they were able to reroute her out of the area. Oh my gosh. How terrifying. Yeah. And in the meantime, I'm sitting at the end of that road, still wondering, is my kid in that house? I know she's 20 year old, but she's still my kid. You know, I'm not being able to reach her. Well, I was able to reach my husband and he was in Oregon. So not really sure what wires got crossed and why I was able to reach him, but he in turn called her and was able to get her on the phone. 
So he called me back, told me she was okay. And we finally connected again at the convention center where we waited on my 14 year old to get there from the high school. And what kind of home was this? It was about a 3,200 square foot house, um, three bedrooms upstairs and one bedroom downstairs and a den. And I'm just so thankful she wasn't downstairs because, you know, any kind of basement living, there's no windows, no, you know, it's dark. You never even know what time it is when you're down there. So I'm, I'm so thankful she wasn't downstairs when all this occurred. It took just minutes for it just to be gone. You mentioned your dogs jumped on her lap. What kind of dogs were they? And were they barking? Did they wake her up? No, one. they're both mini schnauzers and one just happened to jump in her lap. And, and I'm thinking maybe she sensed that there was something going on. But yeah, no, they're both mini schnauzers and they're both... <laughs> They're both safe and my heroes, actually. <laughs> was your daughter able to grab anything else? Because I realize now you guys weren't home to like, you know, grab your go bag or your important essentials. No. Was she able to grab anything? Nothing at all. She had no time whatsoever. Um, she was able to grab the dogs and her keys. Um no, <laughs> just no time whatsoever. Wow. Was this something you and your family had ever talked about having to va- evacuate in a fire potentially? And, you know, did you have like a box of documents that you would have been ready to take with you? We we thought about it in the back of our head, but never really had like a family discussion about it. You know, you just don't ever think, oh, it's going to happen to us. And um, we did have everything down in the basement not everything I say, a lot of things downstairs in a safe. Um, however, the the firemen eventually told us that the temperatures were way too extreme to even for that safe to work. So absolutely, you know, everything that was in that was destroyed because of the temperature. It just made it end up busting open. I did have a box for each of my children in my garage um, that I had always said, if there's a fire, I'll have time to grab these. But I didn't, wow. you know, there was no time to grab anything. Yeah. It, it happened so fast as you described. Right. When you actually were able to go back to the property, what was it like seeing that for the first time? Um, how many days after that? And what was it like? We were able to actually go back to the property on Friday. So three days later, it was, it was horrible. I mean, getting to, getting to my house. I mean, I saw the neighborhood, you know, a mile before my house. And I knew if they were in that bad of shape, mine was going to be just as bad. And and it was a lot worse than I ever expected. Were you able to find anything there at all? We were able to sift um, the beginning of the next week. Uh, Samaritan's Purse came out and provided uh, sifters. We were able to find a few ceramic decorations. My daughter did find my very first engagement ring, which blows my mind that she was able it was encased in a piece of melted glass for some reason and the metal was platinum and i was told that's why my ring didn't melt because everything else just like disappeared it was so hot so i have that in a piece of glass and i'm hoping to one day get it extracted and maybe give it to one of my girls was anything else spared were you kind of seeing your neighbors do similar things we had a neighbor on both sides and uh, they hadn't start, started any work yet. I believe they're starting, I think maybe one of them started yesterday. Um, they hadn't, but I did notice the uh, Southern Baptist disaster relief was at the one that's just north of me yesterday. So um, 
but no Samaritan's Purse, they were there with us all day, one day, helping us just sift through every little piece of ash until we ran out of time in the day. When you drove down your road and saw, you know, basically I've seen pictures, so I'm just trying to describe it for people who are just listening to our discussion. Basically your home was leveled, right? Was that the first time you knew your home was no longer standing or did you find out when you were waiting? We were told immediately that it was in the first line of the fire, that it was, it was gone. So we knew within just a couple hours. What was that like when you heard that news? Horrible. I mean, the worst, and I know there's far worse things that could happen to a family, but to us, it was by far the worst thing that's ever happened to us. I couldn't believe it because we, we moved here as a dream, you know, um, we gave up our jobs. We gave up everything. We uprooted our, our last three girls and, and wanted to, to live here. And we lost everything in a matter of minutes. So pretty devastating. Yeah. We know there are several volunteer organizations who went to Ruidoso to help evacuees with food, shelter, essentials. Some of those organizations are still there well after the flames are gone. I saw you mentioned on Facebook that you've never been on this end of a tragedy like this. What is it like being on the receiving end of some of these acts of kindness from, in some cases, complete strangers? It's been difficult because, again, we haven't ever had anything major happen. We've always wanted to be the ones to be able to help. So it's been tough. And, you know, my mother-in-law told us don't deny people that blessing. And that, that struck a chord because you know how it feels to give Um, those people are doing that for us. And we, we appreciate it. I mean, there've been people, like you said, complete strangers, Um, our friends, our family, everybody has rallied. And it's, it's just been overwhelming. Along those lines, you mentioned the, the rallying that happened with friends and family, um, where you stayed after this fire took place. I understand it, it was a hotel and then maybe it sounds like with the few family members and whatnot. Um, can you just sort of take us through where did you go after this and where are you now? Shortly after um, I got my daughter that was in the house, we met at the convention center and then they bust all the kids from the the schools to the convention center. So I had to wait another hour and a half to make sure my other child, I have a 14 year old at the high school that is handicapped. She's visually impaired. Um, She's intellectually disabled. So my fear was getting her there safely. So um, by the time they got her, she wasn't on her normal bus. So she was a little freaked out about that, freaked out that there was no electricity, you know, just everything. Um, But I finally got her. We sat at the convention center for a little bit, tried to get my bearings, our bearings, I should say. Um, Then we headed to Roswell. My mom's in Roswell and we stayed the night. Really didn't know what to do. My husband, again, was out of state, but he got a flight home and was able to be home by 4 a.m. the next morning. So um, came back to Riodoso. Uh, left my 14 year old with my mom, of course, me and my older girls came back, no electricity, you know, just nothing in Ridoso still. So we weren't even able, once we reconnected with my husband, we weren't able to even get a room here because of the electricity situation. So we went back to Roswell, I believe for three days, came back on Friday and uh, the village was able to secure, I guess, anybody who lost a home and any evacuees, uh, local accommodations for 14 days. 
So we were at the Elevate Hotel, which was a little hidden gem that we never even knew existed. And now we're going to advocate because they were fabulous. Um, they, they welcomed everybody. They were very accommodating. We ended up staying there about 10 days and then uh, we're able to find a long-term rental, which everybody knows is really hard to do. And it just worked out. So what's next for you? You plan on rebuilding in Rodoso and what does that process look like for you guys? Well, like I said, my husband is a general contractor, so I'm very fortunate in that. He's in protective mode right now. The first three days he had already redrawn up new plans, had me go over it, made sure it was exactly what I wanted. He submitted to the architect and um, they're finalizing that now. We had a structural engineer come out and inspect it and he said it's good to go. Our foundation is still good, so we can actually just start rebuilding once permits are provided. Uh, that may take a little bit, but on that same lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to stay there. Do you think it's going to be the same? I mean, I know a fire ripped through that whole neighborhood. It, it has to have changed the landscape a little bit, but um, what is your outlook when it, when it comes to something so destructive has changed likely the shape of the area? Do you think it's still going to be the same? It's not going to be the same. Um, Visually, it's not. I mean, I believe we had to have, I don't know, probably almost close to a dozen trees taken off just our property. And, you know, you can see far and wide now that there's no, I mean, there's trees, there's just bare trees. It's definitely going to change, but you know what? We love our property. It's nice and flat. Um, you know, we have the hill behind us and the creek behind us. But as far as, you know, like I said, we have a handicapped child. Um, the lot is perfect for us. It's large. She can ride her bike out there. My grandkids can come play. We're just going to have to make the best of it. And, you know. Yeah. I know cost is one of the things that's here. And, and it sounds like you are able to navigate how this is going to happen for you guys here. Wildfire coverage is kind of one of those things in terms of insurance that's out there. Not everybody gets it, but some people do. In this case, it sounds like this is something you guys probably had. I guess what what can you say and what what would you feel comfortable of telling people about sort of how you're able to move on financially from here? Because I I know that's got to come at some sort of a cost. Yeah. (laughs) My recommendation to people in the future is check your insurance. There are, and we have, we've heard stories of so many people here that weren't insured. Thankfully we were. And again, my, my husband, uh, you know, works with homes every day. I, I sell homes. So we, we understand the importance of it. And I think so many people, they do understand it, but a lot of times you put it off and go, Oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Uh, My recommendation is do it now and make sure you're covered. Make sure you're over covered because So many people aren't, and I cannot even imagine what they're going through right now. Before we are recording this interview, when I was just chatting with you over the phone, I know you did share that you're in a, like basically leasing a rental property for a year. This was an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Wow. Airbnb prices. It's, it's, um, you know, very high, very, um, we couldn't afford it had we not had insurance. Does fire insurance cover that Airbnb like lease for a year, essentially, right? Well, we have coverage that will uh, allow us to have it for up to two years. We're looking at hopefully just a year. 
um, to rebuild, but uh, no, our coverage would cover it for two years. How much is insurance having to pay for an Airbnb for an entire year? $6,700 a month. Yeah. And who could afford that? Nobody. Right. That's three times what my mortgage was. And, and I, and again, I just, I don't know how people are are doing it without insurance because we sure as heck couldn't. Is there anything else we didn't ask you that you want to share about your experience? I know it's been a few weeks and I don't know how your perspective has changed or even just like seeing and being in your community now and still seeing like people helping and the process of trying to rebuild just starting. It's just, you know, there's still just a lot of sadness, but there's also a lot of joy in seeing what's, what's gone on. And I mean, there's there's so many people just help. I mean, it's, it's been phenomenal. And I know, you know, like you said, the flames are gone, but the problems there, we're just now facing them and it's not going to get better yet. You know, there's still just a lot to deal with. Um, insurance isn't going to be easy as far as uh, documenting every single thing that you own. You know, that's that's our next feat is a stack of papers trying to inventory our home for them. You know, I just hope people don't forget about us because just because life goes on, our life kind of stopped and we have to, you know, restart and figure out what direction. And I'm sure there's going to be many more people in the same shoes that you are uh, in right now throughout New Mexico. If you just see what's continuing to go on with whether it's the, you know, Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon fire, we know that structures have been lost around there. Um, The Cerro Palado fire up in near Hemis Springs. And it's certainly, it's affecting many different communities in the state right now, for sure. Yeah. My extended family actually own a ranch in Mora. And uh, so we're just kind of waiting on that to see the condition of that. How are your girls doing? They're good. They're doing well. Um, my my little one, she does, my, I say she's little, she's 14. She's little to me. She doesn't quite get um, everything that's going on. But my 20 year old, she's, she's out there. She's working with my husband every day and they're cleaning the property, um, getting through. And then, you know, our other girls aren't in the area, but lots of support. thank Karen Roach and Carrie Gladden for chatting with us on this podcast here today. Definitely want to keep them in mind as they continue to rebuild in the Ruidoso area from what is obviously a very dramatic and traumatic fire for a lot of people out there. We'll continue to bring you updates about the wildfires and evacuations happening across the state on air on KRQE and online at krqe.com. You can find more about this episode and all of our previous coverage at krqe.com slash podcasts. In the meantime, feel free to reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I am at Chris McKee TV on Twitter and also by email that is chris.mckee at krqe.com. We thank you for listening. Thank you.